You're listening to the Sunday podcast from Life Point Church in Santan Valley, Arizona. We hope you are encouraged by today's message. For more information, visit us online at lifepointaz.com. Howdy, y'all. So we got new lights, right? You can see that. Wow, this is loud too. Um, we've got these new lights. They were uh, one of our congregants works for SRP. And it's over $3,000 in lights, and we're getting a full rebate for the entire amount to put in. And it's going to save us four grand, three to four grand a year in electricity. So, yes, we can cheer for that. So they're really bright, and we have DMX boxes, which is not like the DMX, you know, from the 90s. They're different, I've been told. Um, but they're going to go up there, and then we can lower them and actually adjust these ones. So... We're very grateful for that, and uh, we don't have those giant things that when they kicked on, it was like, <laughs> remember those? You could just hear the money being sucked out of the place. <laughs> no longer do we have that. Well, we're done with the book of John. We're done with the gospel of John for right now, which is tough for me. After we spent almost the entire year in there, it became like a good friend. I look forward every week to wherever I was at, studying and uh, reading. So this morning I woke up and read John 1 again, right? Just that beginning, I am the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. The Word was with God. And it just, there's no greater scripture. In the beginning, our God was fully self-existent, without cause, without any need to get him going. He just was. And that is the God we serve. We don't serve a petty God. We don't serve a God that fights with other gods. We serve the God, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And as we enter into Advent season here this week, uh, I want you to keep that in mind. Advent is a season of preparation, right? That's the whole purpose of it is we spend four weeks leading up to Christmas preparing our hearts and our minds for the things that God has for us to remember who he is, to be reminded of that glory and that majesty, which is why it's so good to read a verse like John 1, 1, because it reminds you of the glory of the one that you praise. And so this morning, we're going to be starting this Advent series on the phrase taken from Galatians 4, 4, which is in the fullness of time. And so that's the series name, in the fullness of time. And this morning, we're looking at the fullness of sin. Jesus basically uh, said that he came at a time in history uh, when sin had reached its peak, right? The world had seen, he had allowed sin in mankind and sin in his people, the Israelites, to reach its, its pinnacle. And it's in that process that Christ came in, incarnate God, into history. And this is what we celebrate during this time of year. So, uh, we're going to look at Galatians 4, 4 through 7 here. I'm going to show you the verse that is the inspiration for this, and then we're going to do a little bit of history. Who loves history class? Yeah, mostly adults. Kids are like, no thank you. Well, I didn't like history either. Uh, as I've gotten older, I realized the importance of it. Without history, you're doomed to repeat the mistakes of the past, and oh boy, do we need our history as an American church, because we are repeating some common mistakes that you could see right here in the Christmas story. So... Galatians 4, 4 through 7 reads like this. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, 
to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son, the Holy Spirit, into our hearts, and it cries, Abba, Father, or Daddy, is what Abba is translated into. It's an affectionate call, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if you are a son, then you are an heir of God. Amen? Amen. So as we look at this, there is a prophet in the Old Testament, and it is actually that prophet, which is where we are going to go next, starting in February of 2020, which is the prophet Daniel. And we're going to go through the entire book of Daniel uh, as we head into the spring of next year. It's going to be incredible. As, but what we're going to see here is we look at the history of the 400 years, right? There's 400 years from when the last prophet Malachi spoke on behalf of the Lord to when John the Baptist came proclaiming that the one is on his way. 400 years of silence, of silence from God. How many of you have ever complained to God because you haven't heard him in a couple weeks? <laughs> yeah, right? You're like, where are you, God? I asked for that raise like a month ago and nothing. I mean, granted, I haven't done anything extra at work. I don't deserve the raise. But still, 400 years they went. Daniel writes in Daniel chapter 7, 14, as he speaks about the Messiah to come, there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and his kingdom will not be destroyed. It is the Christmas season, a time filled with excitement and joy. We've got beautiful decorations. We've got lights of all colors. Anybody driven by Queen Creek Marketplace this weekend? It's a nightmare. There's parades, and everybody's at the stores, and we are spending money. In fact, it is this season, starts with Black Friday and leads up to Christmas, that a retail store will make all of its money for the year. It basically spends the other 11 months of the year just surviving for this four-week period that we are in right now, because we as Americans buy so much stuff <laughs> for the lack, because of the respect of the stage, stuff. And the thing is, as Christian Americans, it is hard not to get swept up in the hoopla and the craze of the tradition and the culture, and we have completely forgotten why are we excited? What are we so thrilled about? Why do we put lights out? Why do we buy gifts? All of it has sort of lost real depth of meaning. And friends, that is why we have Advent, to remember to prepare our hearts, to step back from the craziness and the busyness of the holidays, and to take time and remember. So as we kick this series off here, that's why I want to start with some history so that we can understand where we've come from and hopefully not repeat the mistakes. What does the fullness of time mean? What does that phrase mean, when the fullness of time had come? Well, it means that long before Jesus' birth, God had a way, God was preparing a way, and there were two genealogies, right, that are listed. Luke 3, 23 through 27 has the genealogy, which takes us all the way back to Adam, right? So in Luke's book, it goes back to Adam all the way up, and we see how Christ is part of the Abrahamic and the Davidic covenant. That's the covenant with Abraham and the covenant with King David. And then we have the genealogy in Matthew 1, 1 through 17, and that takes us to Abraham. 
Abraham, of course, was called out to be separate. Abraham is the start of the Israelites. He is the, he is the beginning of God's people. And he was promised, Abraham, your descendants will cover the earth. The whole earth will be blessed through you, Abraham. And so Matthew gives us the genealogy starting at Abraham. Luke gives it starting at Adam. And God, what it shows overall, has been preparing the way for his son since the very beginning. This isn't a second choice. This isn't an oops. This isn't plan B. It always was there. And this leads me into an interesting thought. And I love Chad posted that thing on Molinism. And I'm like, finally. Like, I have explained this and I have tried to explain this to people for years. And for some reason, for God, it, he gave it. And it's just always made sense to me. But there is a battle in Christians, and maybe you're here today, amongst free will and the infinite election, knowledge, predestination, whatever you want to call it, of God. Right? Do you know what I'm talking about? So if you're Calvinist, you believe that you are elect, that there are the elect and the unelect, meaning there are ones who are born and right from the beginning, they never had a chance, they're not elect, they're going to, they're going to hell, they're going away from God. There is the elect and the unelect. And then there's a huge problem in that, and Chesterton had a big problem with that, which is why he brings up the idea of loving Catholicism and the fact that all people will be saved, and that with the election process, it takes away free will. We don't have free will. Anybody else ever struggle with this? Understanding free will and God's omnipotent and omniscient power? Well, here's the thing about God knowing everything, and I hope this helps clear some things up for you. I thought it was really well explained in a little two-minute video, and I was like, Yes, that's it. When God says he knows everything, it's not like if we had a human who knew everything. If a human knew everything, imagine that. We've got people with photographic memories and all they have to do is look at it and they have it memorized and they can recite it. But imagine a human that knew everything. That would mean they would know everything all the way back from the beginning of every history book, anything that could be read, anything that could be known about man, they would know it. They would know every score of every game. They would know every battle. They would know every person. They would know everything from past to present. And that's where it would end because they can't know the future. There's no way to know the future. So that's our view of knowing everything. Now God's view of knowing everything means he not only knows the past, he not only knows the present and the future, but he also knows every other alternate future that could possibly exist. Now you're like, that's a weird thought. Help me understand that, Pastor. Absolutely. Marvels, the Avengers. Did you see when Doctor Strange, right, when they're fighting Thanos and Doctor Strange got in his little pose and he's like the wizard of time and he's just like, and then when he comes to, he tells Tony Stark, Iron Man, he says, I have seen, was it, 14 million possibilities and there is only one good one. There's only one where we win. Every other millions or billions of possibilities, Thanos wins, destroys half of life on the earth. This is what Molinism said, the, the, the theologian Molina. He said, the way free will and God's omniscience work together is God knows what we sh uh, should do. He knows what we will do. But most importantly, he knows what we would do. Meaning, if you were Abraham, given the choice to step out and trust God, what would you have done? He knows that in every single situation, every unique individual soul, he knows every possibility and every outcome. Meaning Dr. Strange saw 14 million, 
And God sees a number that it's infinite. I can't even come up with the number. Because he does not reside inside time. It is an invention. Like the hairs on your head, or the trees outside, or the clouds in the sky. Time is an invention. He made it up. He thought of it. And thought, you know what would be neat? Time. Day and night. I'm going to invent it. I'm not bound by it. I don't live in it. It's just there. And so as we talk about Christ coming in and we talk about this preparation, fullness of time, I want you to see the power and the majesty of your God. When he said time was full, he is literally saying, everything I have prepared and every outcome and everything that could be, this is the exact moment that it must happen. I have seen every outcome. I know every outcome, and this is the most beneficial moment to put my son incarnate into history to bring my people back to me. Amen. Amen. Right? When you understand God like that, it takes away the mysticism. It takes away the, the, the mythology and the lameness of what Christian God has become here, and it should cause you to step back and say, my goodness, who am I? Who am I to question him? Remember Job? Job? After God says, gird up your loins like a man, Job, I'm about to ask you some questions. Where were you when I told the sea to stop? Where were you? Where were you? Where were you? And Job says, who am I, O oh Lord? Who was I ever to ask you or question you? So God has been preparing the way, right? And so we get to this fullness of time, and here the fullness of time is actually fulfilled by unfulfilled promises because we knew that throughout the prophets and the kings of the Old Testament, God Almighty made promises to his people, very recorded, meticulously recorded promises across multiple generations that can be seen in the Old Covenant. We take for granted the beauty of that. How many generations the old covenant spans. How many different people groups and cultures and all of that. And yet through it all, it, it's the same. It's the same word. And so we knew there were unfulfilled promises in the old covenant. And God's going to fulfill those in his son, Jesus Christ. He set a time for the fulfillment. Habakkuk 2.3 tells us that. Habakkuk 2.3. He set a time for the fulfillment. But First Peter one ten through 12 tells us no one knew what it was, not even the prophets. All the vision, all the insight, all the wisdom he gave the prophets of the Old and New Testament, and still nobody knows the time, knew the time that Christ was coming in, and we don't know the time that he's coming back. He's kept that for himself. When the angels announced the birth of Christ with their tidings of peace in Luke 2.14, they were announcing and declaring that the promises of the old covenant are being fulfilled in this one. You hear that? Those promises are now fulfilled in the child of Christ. I'm going to show you here why this was not a well-received message, why this was not something that the prophets, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. How many times have you heard that in church? Pharisees and Sadducees. How many of you know what that actually means? A Pharisee and a Sadducee. What's the difference between the two? We're going to talk about that. You know why? History. That's why. Okay. Jesus was born about 500 years after Babylonian captivity. Remember that little nugget of information that happened in the Old Testament there? 
The Israelites get taken captive. All of their stuff gets destroyed, turned to rubble by the Babylonians. And during this time, Daniel, who we'll learn more about next year, he was the prophet. He was the one speaking on behalf of God, trying to encourage the Israelite people, turn from your ways. So God used the Babylonians to uh, help his people turn from their ways. And about 100 years later, so 400 years before the birth of Christ, we get the prophet Malachi. And Malachi is the one who's going to be the last speaker, the last voice on behalf of the people for God before the coming Christ. And just so you can get a picture for yourself, 400 years, I believe it was November 11th, around 1620, that the pilgrims landed here in uh, America, what we call America. It's been 400 years. Do you think we live culturally different than they did? Do you think things have changed in technology, in understanding, in thought processes, in religion, in politics, in science, from the pilgrims to us? That is the amount of time that has passed. Doesn't that put it into perspective? It's crazy. They're a different people. They haven't heard from their God as regularly as they had for the hundreds of years prior to that, thousands even. They haven't heard from their God. And so here we have this group of people, these Israelites, who are no longer have their own king. They no longer even have their own space. They're under Roman rule. And Malachi being written about a century after the rebuilding of Jerusalem. So they come out of captivity from Babylon, right? The exile. God sets them free from Babylon. They rebuild. About, and then uh, Malachi comes in. And so there's this restoration of Israel, and their land begins to be restored. The, they rebuild the temple that the Babylonians had destroyed. They're starting to get their identity back. They're starting to get um, peace back as a nation. And, and what happens? Malachi tells us exactly what happens. He paints a picture of a people who had grown casual in their obedience. Okay, God, thanks a lot for getting us out of there. We'll take it from here. We're good now. Everything's fine. We'll go back to praising you and doing religious things that you need us to do, and we're good. Malachi says this is the heart of the people. They were back in their land. And they actually even say, chapter 1 of Malachi, they get to the point of saying, you know what, God, you've changed. You're a different God than when we went into Babylon. You show favoritism to the wicked. You do not bring success to your people anymore. You've changed, God. Go ahead, look it up. That's what they say, Malachi 3.15, you allow the wicked to prosper. Essentially, they condemn the righteousness of God, and they're about to see what that brings them. So Malachi noted the people's failures. He said, you look at God, and you judge God, and you say he's the one who's changed, but allow me to point out some of the things you've changed. Your priests are now accepting blemished sacrifices. Meaning, you no longer have to bring the best of what you have as a sacrifice to the Lord. You can bring the weakest and the worst and the thing that isn't even good for eating or for wool, and you just go ahead and you bring that. The sacrifice no longer means anything, and the priests are like, yeah, that's good enough. After all, God's sort of not really giving us the things we'd like anyway. That's good enough. Secondly, you're divorcing one another and exchanging your covenantal marriages in order to marry pagans in order to marry people outside of the faith just because you want to. Not just is this a moral offense, but you have abandoned your inheritance, your, your adherence, I'm sorry, to the covenant of God. 
And then he goes on. You no longer tithe. You no longer give your first fruits, and yet you expect blessings from God. You deny him what is his, and then demand him to bless you. Does that sound like any other Christians that you know of? Me neither. Thank goodness, right? Thank goodness we all study this, and none of us do this anymore. That's as sarcastic as I can be. <laughs> what in the world? This is 400 years before Christ came. You know what's really sad? When he came, those people were doing the same exact thing. They were still doing it. And here we are 2,000 years later with the benefit of the Old and the New Testament put neatly together for us. And we still do the same thing. I heard a, I literally caught just the tell end of it on the radio this week, leaving my daughter's softball game. And uh, it was a pastor talking about tithe, but it was so good. He said, if you do not bring your first fruits to God, he will take them another way. So you can either bring them voluntarily to the Lord, bring them into the storehouse for the benefit of his church and his kingdom, or you can have your water heater blow up in the middle of the night, and you're going to lose the money one way or another. He will take it, but he gives you the free will to choose how you give it. It's such an interesting thing. I don't know. That's just for you. That's a nugget. You do what you want with it. So what happened during these 400 years? Well, the prophet Daniel tells us in his visions that there will be four successive kingdoms that will come before Christ comes. The Babylonian kingdom, the Persian kingdom, the Greece, the kingdom of Greece, which is really Alexander the Great and all of the territories that he conquered. Do you know that Alexander the Great conquered so many people groups that a lot of the ites and the isms that you read about in the Old Testament were completely wiped off the face of the earth by Alexander the Great? The Moabites, Edomites, all of these ites from the Old Testament don't exist because Alexander the Great, well, let's just say, wasn't a nice guy. And then the fourth kingdom, which was Rome. So these four kingdoms, the prophet Daniel said would come, these empires would come, the fall of Jerusalem would come, and then the Messiah would come. And it's during the time of Rome that the Messiah comes and the apostolic era comes. That's the whole time the apostles are preaching. The Greek influence of the Egyptian Ptolemites produced a division among the Jews. Now, this is really important to understand because this will help you understand your Bible. This will help you understand why you read what you read, okay? So with the Greek influence, what happened is some of the Jews began to take culture, which was the Greek influence, the philosophers, because that was their religion. Their religion wasn't religion so much as the mythologies and all of that, but if you were a true educated and wealthy Grecian, your religion was philosophy. Your religion was to be a critical thinker. Well, there were the Jews who said, you know what, that's pretty good. Let's incorporate that in with Yahweh and the law. Let's bring that in. And it created a divide because then there were other priests and religious leaders who said, no, we only follow the law, none of that. So what it did is it created two groups. You know what these two groups were called? Sadducees and the Pharisees. We are learning, yes. Gold star for you and you. So the Sadducees were the ones who were amenable, meaning they welcomed in what was called Hellenization or the uh, thought process of philosophy from the Greeks, and they accommodated it. 
and then the traditionalists were opposed to that, those were the Pharisees. So now you know. The Pharisees were opposed to the influence of Greek tradition, and the Sadducees welcomed it in and incorporated it with Scripture. Now, the problem and what happened to the Pharisees is they took it and began to build their own laws around the laws to protect them from the Sadducees. See that? They begin to add laws to the law of God. They begin to add requirements to the law of God that not even he put on us. And then we get the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And so, okay, no jokes while I'm speaking. You save those dad jokes for later. I heard it. I, help me, Lord. And so now we're at the birth of Jesus, okay? We've made it. We've made it through 400 years. You see the empires that have come and gone, and we're at the birth of Jesus. Rome is the fourth kingdom described by Daniel. Isn't it fascinating that missing in those four kingdoms is one important group of people, the Israelites? In fact, when Jesus comes and enters into history, his people don't have a kingdom, They don't have a king, they don't have an army, they don't have political influence. In fact, they are solely held together by one thing, and it is their religious belief. That is the only thing holding the Israelites together when God enters into human history. And then, at this time, there is this guy named Herod, Herod the Great. I think he gave himself the moniker, the Great. I'm not sure certain he was born with it. But he was what was called an Edomene. An Edomene comes from the ancient tribe and people, the Edomites, who established the Edomites for two, wait, sapphire rubies in your gold crown. Who established the Edomites? Is it up there? <laughs> Look, when I'm trying to do trivia, you've got to just wait on me. Yes, Esau, brother of Jacob, established the Edomites. Isn't that fascinating? You see, this is so cool. If you look throughout the Old Testament, whenever a man or a woman of God decides to try to do something in their own way, it doesn't just stop there. Their sin just doesn't affect them in their moment. Ishmael and Isaac. Are you aware today that the war between Islam and Christianity goes all the way back to Ishmael and Isaac? And here we have the very empire that Jesus Christ is coming into, and the ruler over that area is Herod, who is an heir of Esau, who saw his birthright to be blessed by God so invaluable that he was willing to give it up for a bowl of soup. You think that was an accident? Do you think it's an accident that Herod was there? What do you think? No. No. So then, if that means God is providential, and if that means that God establishes every single kingdom and every single ruler and every single one of them have a purpose, then that means our current men and women in office, Senate, Congress, and President, all have been placed there by God. And each and every single one of them, whether they know it or not, are serving his purposes. Do you hear me? That's the beauty of free will combined with his providential nature. Do you think Herod the Great knew that being an offspring of Esau and what his great-great-great-grandfather would have done helped factor into the fact that he was selected as the one who would be ruling this province of Rome when Christ was going to come into it? you think that ever crossed his mind? No. 
But did he have the free will to be a good guy or a bad guy? He sure did. And yet, somehow, God in his wisdom, somehow, he's there. Oh boy, I gotta hurry. And so here we are in this time of Christ's birth. The Romans had ruled the, the, Romans had ruled the world for half a century by this point. I mean, they've got complete dominance. They're overtaking and overthrowing everything. And in areas that were easy to govern, like Galilee was, they would just put a local official in charge. But in areas that were a little more difficult, a little more troublesome, they'd put Roman officials, such as Pilate, Festus, Felix, remember these names, all towards uh, Christ's crucifixion time, and Paul. And Rome generally allowed freedom of religion, not because it was progressive in any way, but because of the fact that it just didn't really care. It was like religion's mythology, it's all fake, we don't really care. There's still a group of people that love Jupiter and Mercury and Apollos, and so they were like, fine, you can worship them. The real, educated and wealthy of Rome, they followed philosophy. They followed the writings and the teachings of Aristotle and Plato, Socrates, those kind of things. 400 years, it was silent. And then came one calling in the wilderness. The voice of one calling in the wilderness, John the Baptist. The one that Malachi said at the end of his prophecy, there will come the spirit of Elijah and he will bring forth the son of righteousness. And that's John the Baptist. The first time God has spoken through a prophet since Malachi. And he begins to tell the Israelite people there in Rome, he's here. He's coming, he's here. The promise of the prophets, he's here. This is it, it's happening. And he begins to prepare the way for the ministry of Christ. The Apostle Paul interprets the fullness of time as when God's people could see and at last claim their promised inheritance. Everything they had waited for, all of the captivity and the slavery, the being taken from, from one empire to another to be subject, to be forced to worship, to be killed, all of it has led up to this moment. Their promised inheritance, the Messiah, is here. Mark 1.15, Jesus declared at the opening of his public ministry, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So here's the thing. You've got the two covenants of the Old Testament that lead directly for the genealogy of Christ, right? You've got the Abrahamic covenant that God made with Abraham, and then the Davidic covenant that he made with King David, that the Savior of the world would come through those two lines. And so what we see throughout Scripture and what we can see throughout this time here is we look at the very carefully crafted timelines and genealogies that are there in the New Testament is this, is that even though God's judgment and consequences for the uh, choices of the people is evident, his grace and his mercy are evident even more. And so I want to close with this. What do we do with the future? What does this mean for the future? means a couple things. One is that there used to be a time in this country when we held this word above anything the culture said. And this was held up here. And then culture, anything it said was down here. And if we were going to subject ourselves to this word, 
we were going to have to change ourselves, change our thinking, change what we desire, change our passions, come under authority of. But honestly, the Christian church in America is more like the Sadducees, where we have adopted the culture, we have adopted what the culture says is good, and we have brought it in and we have taken the word of God and we have brought it down to culture. As teachers of the word, we become careful not to offend anybody. And so we don't talk about hard subjects and then we water down the difficult ones that we think we need to talk about and we take the word of God and we blaspheme it when we try to take God and fit him into our culture. Friends, as we kick off this Advent season, there is no better way that I could think that you can prepare your hearts than to take time with the Lord this week and say, God, what about your word don't I like? Now, hear me on this. I don't care if you've been a Christian for 50 years. The word of God should offend you and it should come against what you want to do and what you want to believe. Why? Because we still are bound in the sin nature. We're in the bodies. We're set free through Christ, but we're still in these bodies. And until we're set free from these bodies, until we meet with Christ in a redeemed body, you are going to be opposed to the word of God. You will fight it, and you should fight it, and the more you submit yourself to Christ, the more you come into line with it. But the fact of the matter is, if you try to find a teacher who will explain the Bible the way that you want it to be explained, then you can find that, and you will be wrong. The truth of the matter is this. If you get an individual who has studied the Greek and the Hebrew, right? Francis Chan just spoke about this a month ago at Azusa Pacific. I loved it. He said, when you get to that level of individual who has studied the Greek and the Hebrew, they can make this thing say anything they want. You know that? I can interpret it completely backwards and different than another pastor could interpret it, and you can make it say whatever you want. So you can choose a college where they only teach what you already believe, and they won't challenge you. They won't challenge your beliefs and they'll continue to interpret it the way you do. The thing about the word of God is this, is it stands alone, and in your heart when you read it, God's spirit will tell you whether you're on track or off track. He will tell you. You don't need to know the Greek and the Hebrew. You don't need to come to me. God on the cross, the birth of Christ into our human history gives you the ability and the right like Moses to climb the mountain yourself and go to God. You don't need a priest to do it. You don't need your pastor to do it. You don't need a more educated Christian to do it. Christ invites you to come before him. And for you to ask him questions. And for you to say, God, this part of your scripture, I struggle with it. I don't think it's loving. I don't think you could be a kind God and a good God and yet say this about judgment of people. And God says, excellent, I'm glad you brought that to me. Let's talk about it. Here's my word. Let's begin to read it. I'll show you my heart. In every generation... 
where Christianity gets watered down or swept aside, it's because the people stopped rising up and reading it themselves. You hear me? Every time. In Malachi's time, in the time that Jesus was born, those two factions, people went to the chief priests, they went to the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees, they went to them and said, tell us what it says. You now have the Bible on any device, in any language, with every commentary you could possibly want, and we still don't read it. We wait to come to our pastor and hear what I have to say about it and then take that as gold. Don't do that. Spend this week, prepare your hearts. Ask God about the thing that you don't like about this. Ask him with the thing you struggle with. How is it fair that a 12-year-old Muslim boy could go to hell, God? I don't like that. I don't know, is that fair? Is that what God's gonna do? How is it fair on marriage and people have to forgo love if they're not a certain way? How is that fair? I don't like that, God. Take it to him. Go before him. Read his word. Do not go and read all commentaries, because like I said, I'll give you commentaries on every issue in the Bible that say the complete opposite thing from very learned doctoral men and women. Go to the Lord. That's what we're doing in this uh, Advent season, is we're going to go to him, right? What if it started with the church out in the cornfields called Life Point? What if it started with people here who begin to get real about their faith and go after it? Holy cow, I'm over time, so let's pray. Lord God, oh, you see it, Lord. I know you see what is happening here in this country, but God, you have not removed your spirit from this country. I know that because there are men and women in this country that serve you and that love you, and your spirit has not departed from us. Your spirit is with us. And so, God, we ask, we come together and as many parts of the body, but one body, we ask, Lord, to renew a right spirit within us, to renew a hunger and a desire for your word, Lord. I pray your spirit would fall down on this place, God, and that men and women who have been out of your word, who have been seeking but not engaging in it, Lord, that you would touch the hearts of men right now. Paul says, I did not come to you with genius arguments. I did not come to you with pervasive language. I did not come with persuasive language. I did not come to you with great theology. He says, I came with one thing. I came with the truth and the word of God. So here's what I want to leave you with, and then we're going to take communion here. I'm going to uh, dismiss you to take communion. We have three stages up front, three in the back. You can go to the station that's closest to you. If you're going to partake of communion with us, we ask that you have a relationship with Christ. But here's the thing. I want to invite you that in light of these words, that if you need to get right with God, if you need prayer, if you want to come forward, if you want to give your life to God, then do it. It is a miracle of God when a man or a woman gives their life to him. It is a miracle. It says in the Bible that we are dead in our trespasses. Dead. That means that when you come to Christ, Christ is once again, like he did with Lazarus, raising a dead man or woman and bringing life back into them.
and no amount of persuasive speech or incredible arguments are gonna bring you up. The only thing that will get you up out of your seat is the Holy Spirit. That's why I don't do long, drawn-out invitations. If God is speaking to you, then you get up here. You come and talk with a prayer partner. If God is tugging on your heart, if he's saying something to you, then we have the place for you. But I'm not going to beg you to. Only God's spirit can move you. So I'm going to pray and bless this. And as everybody gets up, uh, feel free to move as God leads you. Heavenly Father, we bless the bread and the juice now. Your body and your blood. What you said, if you wish to be a part of me and my disciple, we must partake in the body and the blood of Christ. And so, Lord, we come together now 2,000 years later to acknowledge that you are king of kings. And like Thomas said, you are my Lord, my God. And we acknowledge that, Lord, in the gathering together, the worship, the listening to of the word, and the receiving and partaking of the elements. We pray a blessing over it now in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead.